We can't act like we're in a post-racial era if we're going to continue to have racist institutions. And I think that's really why it needs to be torn down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode two of Not Your Model Minority. We're your hosts, Talasi and Nabila, and this is part two of our policing episodes. So last episode, we talked about the colonial and white supremacist model on which the Canadian police were built and the role that they play in state violence against Black and Indigenous people through over-surveillance, over-monitoring, and a disproportionate amount of use of force and excessive use of force. So we hope it's been pretty clear from our discussions last episode that something needs to change. So in this episode, Nabila and I want to start a conversation about possible solutions to the policing problem in Canada. If you guys have been following the news and social media the last couple of months, um, there's been a lot of calls to action with regard to the police, such as reform, defunding, abolition, etc. And there's a lot of misconception around what some of those terms mean and what they would entail. For instance, just a couple of weeks ago, one of our friends told us about an ad from the United States about defunding, where basically in this commercial, someone calls 911 and no one picks up because apparently the police has been defunded. So that is absolutely not what defunding means, which will be clear in a couple of minutes when we start talking about it. So with that being said, um, Nabila and I are hoping to just talk it out in this episode, discuss the different avenues for redress, and I guess see where it takes us and what conclusions we reach. So before we get started, I'm going to turn it over to Nabila so she can talk a bit about her thought process leading into this episode. Yeah, so um, doing the readings for the episode this week, I, I came to realize that a lot of the solutions that have been proposed by various activists, all kind of tie back to the history of policing. And really, we can't even begin to address solutions for police violence without considering the history of the police and the part that the police have played in the removal of Indigenous peoples. So I think as we continue our discussion on policing, it's still really important to acknowledge that the land that we're on today is the traditional land of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. So let's start with the reform. It's a very broad concept, and essentially it involves changing the, the culture, policies, and practices of policing in order to better serve community interests and operate in line with community values. So we can achieve reform in a ton of different ways, but in the interest of time, unfortunately, uh, we won't be able to talk about every single avenue for reform. So for this episode, what we are going to address is training, accountability, transparency, and disarming. Yeah, so what we've heard a lot over the last few weeks is the need for increased police training. 
For example, proponents of police reform talk about having better training in terms of use of force. For example, helping police officers learn how to make arrests in ways that are less likely to lead to serious injury or death, or learning how to de-escalate potentially violent situations. There's also talk about cultural sensitivity training to reduce bias, and we've talked about last episode that police officers tend to target specific communities because there is this inherent bias often in policing. And there have been countless official reports over the years that have advocated for better training. For example, the Mental Health Commission of Canada, the Ontario Human Rights Commission, the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry. And the issue is that very few of these suggestions have been implemented. And on top of that, the police have undergone a lot of this training anyways, as Tulasi will explain. And the real question is, has this training been helping the situation? Yeah, for instance, in Ontario, uh, the Ontario Police College and in Toronto with the Toronto Police Service, both bodies actually do have mandatory diversity and bias training annually. But unfortunately, training doesn't really work because implicit and explicit biases remain. For example, there was a study in the U.S. where they found that targeted and intensive training has no impact on the racial disparities regarding traffic stops and marijuana arrests. And this might be an unpopular opinion, and maybe I shouldn't have this attitude considering this podcast is supposed to be educational, but you can't really train someone to not be racist. I mean, racists are going to racist. I mean, sure, I think that you can encourage people to examine their explicit and implicit biases if they're willing to put in the work to self-reflect. But take the police officer who murdered George Floyd. There's no amount of training that is going to change police officers like that. Yeah, I think that one of the biggest issues standing in the way of training being a solution is just the mentality of policing. Uh, We talked a little bit about just the institution of policing and and how it was implemented originally. And on top of that, I think police officers tend to have like a warrior mentality, as in they always have to be prepared for violent and life-threatening situations. And they're often positioned as, you know, it's them against the rest of society. So it's hard for them to be empathetic in certain situations like that, especially if they perceive those situations to be violent. And on top of that, I think the police are just heavily militarized and they have this blessing from the state to be overly aggressive, even when dealing with low-level infractions. One of the things that we were reading about was the concept of broken windows policing, And uh, this concept was uh, first proposed by two professors, James Q. Wilson and George L. Kelling. And basically the thesis of the broken windows policing theory is that when you maintain order, it tends to reduce incidents of serious crimes. So we have to think about what they mean when they say when you maintain order. So the reason it's called broken windows policing is essentially it uses an analogy of a 
for example, a broken window in a building or a car. And if you don't fix that broken window, it tends to lead to more vandalism. So the window's already broken, so other vandalizers will continue to destroy this building or this car. But if you fix it right away and there's no image of disorderly conduct, that will reduce further crime and specifically more serious crimes. And this this theory takes hold in the way police interact with low-income communities today. So what police do is they tend to remind low-income, vulnerable communities that disorderly, unruly, or antisocial behavior is not acceptable. So basically they're there to make civilians feel the pressure to conform to civilized norms, and the hope is that this will lead to fewer serious crimes. So there's this constant political pressure to continue this type of policing, to essentially attack vulnerable communities for low-level infractions in the hopes that it will somehow stop more serious crimes. But this honestly doesn't work. And uh, one of the clear examples of this is New York. So New York actually, in recent years, stopped broken windows policing, and there was no increase in crime or serious crime as a result. So the broken windows policing theory is really just a very racist and classist theory. I also think that, and I may be totally wrong about this, but a phenomenon that I've noticed is that the North American police's mentality tends to revolve a lot around the idea of order rather than crime. And I think it's also worth noting that the concept of disorder in our society is very racially and politically loaded. And definitions of what it means to have order in a society and which crimes and social issues contribute to disorder is, again, very racially and culturally loaded. For example, I would argue that the pervasive problems of sexual assault and sexual harassment contributes to the disorder in our society. But there's definitely more political and uh, police attention toward minor level offenses, which unfortunately puts the focus on certain groups of people, such as people living in poverty, uh, homeless people, sex workers, and Black and Indigenous people, as we've already seen. So I think, I don't know, I think the problem is just bigger than a lack of training. I think based on our discussions both last episode and what we've seen through our research, the the problem is very much with the institution itself. And personally, I'm, I'm very cynical about whether any type of training can really alleviate this, these problems. I just think like, like you said, it kind of reverses the causal link between crime and uh order right so it's like especially when you look at broken windows policing basically the police think that if you essentially hyper focus on communities who are vulnerable then somehow that'll lead to fewer crimes but it's actually the other way around right like it's poverty and having lack of access to housing and health care that lead to crime right so it's just you can't 
address issues of crime by just increasing the level of policing. It just incredibly backwards to me. Okay, let's talk about accountability. So accountability essentially goes into who the police answers to, who oversees them and holds them responsible for transgressions, oversights, and mistakes. So here in Toronto, the police conduct complaints are currently handled by the OIPRD, which is the Office of the Independent Police Review Director, which you will shortly see is an ironic name because they're not very independent. So the OIPRD investigates public complaints about the police and reviews major policing issues. So the problem is that the OIPRD actually has a lot of discretion to decide if they want to handle the investigation or not. In most of the cases, they actually refer the complaints back to the police service against which the complaint was lodged against to handle these investigations. So essentially the police complaints are handled by the police. And we have the same issue with the SIU, which is the Special Investigations Unit. The SIU looks into death and serious injuries involving the police, including allegations of sexual assault by police officers. Again, the problem is the SIU actually employs a lot of former police officers. So I don't think it's fair to make a sweeping generalizing statement and just say that the police officers who are employed by the SIU are incapable of impartiality. But we do have to think about what kind of impression this gives to the public um, and whether there's a reasonable apprehension of bias. I mean, imagine imagine launching a complaint of sexual assault against a police officer and having the same department where that police officer works handle that investigation. It doesn't exactly inspire a lot of faith, right, uh, amongst the public. And I think the other thing we have to consider is, uh, that, that goes hand in hand with accountability, is transparency. So not only are we holding the police accountable, but like you said, we have to look at optics as well and whether the the public has sufficient information about what's happening with these complaints and how the police are dealing with it. If we don't have enough transparency into the process, how can we even hold the police accountable? Right. And I think the OIPRD has significant issues with this. For example, they don't publicly release internal records of misconduct or full disciplinary records. And on top of that, there's no mandatory collection of race based data with respect to stops and arrests. And we know that that from the from our last episode, that's a huge issue. And the fact that we don't collect data on this so we can't really comment on it is a big problem. Um, Another example of increased accountability and transparency measures is uh, body-worn cameras. So this is something that um, Toronto is moving towards implementing in January of 2021 instead of defunding the police, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, So what's been uh, proposed is that police will, by wearing body cameras, Um, This will increase the accountability of the police because we'll have a better idea of what's going on. We'll have eyes on the ground. Um, But there's actually a lot of research that suggests that body-worn cameras aren't effective. One of the the issues with body-worn cameras, um, ironically, is that a lot of the times they're not even on. A lot of research done about 
the efficacy of body-worn cameras in the U.S. have suggested that there have been many times that officers have failed to even turn on their cameras. And then the other thing that I was thinking is how useful is video evidence of police misconduct, really? Um, in recent years, I mean, so much of police misconduct has been captured by cell phone cameras, right? Like it's it, it's been it's been made public. Of course, there are so many we don't see, but we have seen a lot of it and things aren't changing, right? So is is having cameras on really going to help us hold the police accountable? I guess I'm also wondering, you know, is the footage from these body-worn cameras going to be accessible to the public? And who's going to be in charge of creating the policies around body-worn cameras? Is it going to be the police? And are they going to have discretion regarding turning over the footage to overseeing and regulatory bodies? Because the way I see it, just based on the way that the SIU and OIPRD operate, if the police are going to continue to, I guess, be consulted and, and have discretion regarding these reform measures, then how effective is it really going to be? And I think like these accountability and transparency measures, even if you position them as maybe being preventative, they're not really like, I think some may argue that, you know, if police know they're being watched and they're going to be held accountable, they'll behave more appropriately. But I think there's plenty of evidence that um, despite having a cell phone camera on you, you can still put your knee on a man's neck for like eight minutes, right? Like there, I don't know how preventative that is. And instead, I think these accountability and transparency measures are more after the fact measures. Like, I don't think they're actually going to help prevent police violence. Um, they may just help investigate police misconduct. So moving on to disarming. Disarming basically advocates for the police not carrying guns. So we're not saying that necessarily that the police should walk into an objectively dangerous situation completely empty-handed, but rather questioning whether they really need to carry lethal weapons when they're doing a mental wellness check, or if they need to carry guns when they're simply patrolling the streets. And there are a lot of countries where police actually don't carry lethal weapons, such as the UK, um, New Zealand, Norway, Iceland. But I guess we also do have to, to grapple with the reality that there is more gun ownership and gun violence in Canada than the countries that I just mentioned. And on top of that, I think that we have to recognize that police carrying guns can actually result in the escalation of violence uh, during police altercations. For example, offenders are actually less likely to get violent if they know the police are unarmed as opposed to when the police are armed. And that actually increases the risk of police getting shot as well when they are armed. I also think that maybe this is cynical, but I guess I'm in a cynical mood today. Um, but I think it's also going to be hard to convince people that the police should not carry guns. Because I think for North Americans in particular, they associate guns with protection and safety, right? And again, if you're not part of 
certain communities that are disproportionately subjected to violence by the police. I think other people will say that the police keep them safe, right? And they therefore, by extension, think that the police should carry guns. And I think also um, one of the arguments about police carrying their guns is that having guns bolsters their authority. And by bolstering their authority, it reduces the chances of crime. But I think it's very sad, really, and maybe ironic, too, that the police feel like they need to bolster their authority with the threat of lethal force which really indicates the fundamental crisis of police legitimacy. Yeah, so disarming is obviously an, it's an important step, but it's just one piece of reform. Um, again, police mentality and political pressure continue to play a huge role. And, you know, it's also worth noting that we've seen the harm that police can do even without guns. So it's, it's worth remembering that. So a word that's been thrown around a lot in the last couple of months is the word defunding. So we thought it was important that we talk about that and, and kind of explain what that would entail. So defunding does not mean that funds will be withdrawn from the police, but it's rather about shifting those public resources toward other services and institutions that can more effectively help vulnerable communities, assist those in crisis and address the roots of crime. So, for, for example, that would include community social services, education, and mental health services. And I, I read a recent analysis of Canada's 18 biggest cities and regions, and this study found that more than half allocated 15% or more of their 2020 operating budget to policing. So, for example, in Toronto, for 2020, the operating budget for the TPS is $1.22 billion out of the $13.53 billion operating budget for 2020. That's a ridiculous amount. And actually, if you've been following the news, at the end of June of this year, there was a motion put forward to city council to count the TPS budget by 10%. So that's about $107 million for 2020 and put that money towards community services. Unfortunately, but not surprisingly, this was rejected. And instead, the councillors voted in favor of a uh, motion for other reforms, which we already talked about, such as uh, body-worn cameras and also for a non-police response team for mental health crises. And I think we also have to ask why the police are funded so heavily. Like you said, $1.22 billion of the city of Toronto's operating budget is given to the police. But then if we consider stats like the fact that 50 to 80% of calls to the police are non-criminal, then we have to ask ourselves why their budget is so disproportionately large. Right. And I think one of the answers to that is police unions. Police unions are incredibly powerful and they've actually driven the police budget up significantly over the years. So for for listeners who don't know what unions are, so labor unions were created to balance the inequality of bargaining power between employees and employers. So 
traditionally, um, and we still see this every day, uh, employees have very limited bargaining power when it comes to trying to negotiate things with their employer because they're so dependent on their income. And because of their of this inequality in, in the bargaining power, labor unions were created. And the theory behind it is that there is essentially power in numbers. So a lot of jobs which are unionized, the workers pay a certain amount to a union which negotiates on behalf of them. So in the case of the police, however, it's I find it really strange, to be honest, especially as an employment lawyer, uh, the fact that police are unionized. If we look at the reason that unions exist, it is to balance an inequality in, in power. But the police aren't powerless like most workers in our society. The police were created to actually exert power over some, some communities or certain communities. So this kind of flies in the face of the union movement, which was developed to deal with imbalances of power. And the other thing that's really ironic is that the police have actually been used to actively undermine the interests of the labor movement. Uh, the police have historically stopped and arrested labor protesters and and picketers. So it's just really strange to me that the, the police are protected through a mechanism like the union. And really, the police unions actually tend to use their power more so to expand police budgets, maintain militarization, and defend jobs. And they have a huge arsenal to do that. For example, in in recent years, there was Operation True Blue in Toronto, where the, the, the police union actually had a fundraising campaign to target political opponents that criticize the way the police operated. So generally, police unions are incredibly powerful. They will vehemently oppose any sort of defunding. So that makes it very, very difficult to actually succeed in in defunding the police. I think reading all of this uh, was to be completely honest, super discouraging because when I was reading about defunding and, and advocating for it, I I guess I didn't really realize um, the extent to which collective bargaining rights and the police union would constitute uh, barriers, right? And yeah, like defunding would take years to implement because a budget cut like that would mean the loss of thousands of police officers. But Assuming that defunding was immediately feasible, I guess I've just kind of been thinking about whether defunding would even go uh, far enough. You know, even if the police was defunded, the reality is that a deeply racist institution will prevail. So yeah, I don't really know how effective defunding is on its own. And personally, I'm starting to find abolition to be a much more attractive solution. So abolition is not a new concept. It's a, it's a concept that's been discussed by activists for actual decades. Activists like Angela Davis, uh, Miriam Kaba, and Ruth Wilson Gilmore. And there's a lot of confusion about what abolition means. Um, I know Nabila and I, when we first 
started talking about it, we weren't even really in agreement about what it meant. I was under the impression that it meant uh, tearing down the policing institution completely and not replacing it with any type of law enforcement institution. What about you? I think there are just various ways that abolition... I mean, I think abolition just looks different for different people. And to me, it seemed like you tear down the policing institution as we know it. And I think something does come in its place, but it may not necessarily look like the police. I think that abolition doesn't mean that there's just going to be a void. Right. And that's how I took it. Like, I don't think abolition means it's, you know, there's something missing there. It's about creating something new in the place of what we've taken away. And I think and in the interest of complete transparency, because I used to think this, too, a couple of years ago, I think even for people who are. Uh, super critical of the police and people who I guess consider themselves to be uh, general generally opened with regard to radical change I think abolition is perceived as very extreme for a lot of people Um, and I think that generally it's also been met with a lot of resistance partly because people don't completely understand uh, what it means and what it would entail but also because I guess there are not a lot of concrete models about what it would look like. Yeah, so I feel like even though, you know, we might not be able to necessarily visualize right away what a society without the current police will look like, I think that the idea of police abolishment is still part of a greater plan. The idea of police abolishment really came out of the prison uh, abolition movement. And that started a long time ago. The prison abolition movement really took hold in the 60s. But the idea had been forming since the 40s. And police abolition has always been tied to that. Because you can't talk about prisons without talking about police, who are the ones that put people in prisons. And although we haven't been talking about police abolition in the same ways, I think that now it's really starting to become a separate movement on its own. And I think we need to pay attention to that because, um, yes, we might not necessarily see it as like a concrete plan, but activists have been talking about it for a really long time. And I think we need to start listening to those voices if we are going to um, be part of putting together that that plan. There definitely are still a lot of unanswered questions about police abolition. And I think something that we should talk about is violent crime. And that's something that opponents of abolition will often bring up. Um, With regard to that, I think it is worth noting that most police interactions actually involve minor level offenses and nonviolent crimes. But, you know, what about sexual offenders, for instance? And with that regard, I don't want to generalize, but I do think that not everyone, but a lot of people who do bring up that argument, in particular politicians and legislators, and people with particular attitudes, I do find that argument to be a little disingenuous, just when you consider how poorly sexual assault cases are handled by the police and 
how ineffectively they're prosecuted and just the fact that, you know, the government is regularly defunding um, domestic violence initiatives and, you know, the lack of attention to the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, for instance. But at the same time, it's important that we're sympathetic to victims of violent and sexual offenses. And I don't, I don't really know how to, I mean, in the event that the police were abolished, I don't really know how we would handle uh, violent crime. I don't, I don't have the answers to that. But I think just like you were talking about earlier, I, I think it's less about having a concrete plan in mind right now and more about just being open to radical thinking and thinking outside the box, as corny as that phrase is. Yeah, I think the main barrier to the abolition movement is the fact that as soon as someone hears about abolition, they kind of shut down. And I get it. Like, I get if you aren't aware of what's going on and the problems with the police, then if someone comes up to you and says, we need to get rid of the police, it's just going to come off as a crazy idea to you and you're probably not going to listen any further. So I think the first step to really understanding the abolition movement is for people to just open their mind, to open their mind to what abolition is and what it can look like and by the way you know there's absolutely no reason that we need to be constrained by whatever models of policing we know and have implemented so far i think that if we're going to dismantle systemic oppression and and really target the colonial and white supremacist ideology that underlies the policing institution then we're going to have to embrace new ideas and new models. And I think that's difficult for a lot of us and myself included. But after doing all the research and after our discussion, I kind of also feel that abolition really is the only solution. And also just because how can Canada really tell Indigenous and Black communities that they're committed to dismantling systemic oppression and the violence that the state has subjected them to if they're not going to tear that ish down, you know? I think, like we talked about during the last episode, the police were founded on racist ideologies. And when we talk about the police today, we have to ask, what was the purpose of the police? Like, what was the purpose of the police when it was founded? And does it still carry on that purpose? And I think that has to be answered in the affirmative. I think this system that's discriminating against, you know, Indigenous and and Black communities today, it was meant to be this way from the beginning, right? Like, it's working correctly, and I'm using that in quotes, because it was meant to be working that way. So we can't act like we're in a post-racial era if we're going to continue to have racist institutions. And I think that's really why it needs to be torn down. Like I think about like, I think about (laughs) when you have a car, right? If it keeps breaking down, like, yeah, you, you can make repairs on it. And that's how I see reform, right? You can continue to make repairs. But there comes a point where you're like, 
this car is really shitty, I'm gonna go buy a new one. And that's kind of what abolition is proposing. It's like, this system is terrible, get rid of it and get a new one, right? Get a new institution that really works for us because this isn't working for us. And I don't know what the correct pathway is toward abolition, but I am reminded of uh, something that Maryam Kaba talked about when she mentioned, you know, moving toward the horizon of abolition. So what that would entail is essentially taking, you know, incremental steps like defunding and disarming, you know, toward abolition. So I guess moving forward, we would just encourage all of you listening to just be open to challenging your thought process and be open to radical thinking and and radical ideas and to investigate thoroughly before you judge a particular method of reform as effective or ineffective. And if you are looking for resources, definitely check out our website, notyourmodelminority.ca, where we list what we've read for for the episodes. So that's it for us. Um, Thank you for listening. And as always, we encourage you to stay engaged and stay critical. Not Your Model Minority is hosted by Nabila Khan and Talasi Kandia. Special thanks to Himmel Kandiker, Simran Dillon, and Kunal Tandon for helping us produce this podcast. Our theme music is by Pink Marble. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at NYMM Podcast. You can also visit our website, notyourmodelminority.ca, to subscribe to our podcast on your platform of choice, such as Apple or Spotify, as well as find accessible versions of our episodes. Thanks for listening.